You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global debate. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my articles. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. This week's edition is with Professor Adam Tooze of Columbia University in New York. He's a distinguished economic historian. And when I bumped into him at a coffee bar on the World Economic Forum in Davos recently, he told me that he's currently writing a new book on the global politics of climate change. So I asked him if he was willing to give me a preview of his work. Much to my delight, he agreed, and we managed to find a quiet room to talk somewhere in the Congress Centre. It was, I thought, a fascinating and enlightening conversation, bringing together economics, politics, geopolitical rivalries, and the fear of environmental disaster. Adam Tooze starts by explaining the origins of the current crisis. You could, of course, say the origins of this go back to the Industrial Revolution. And if you're asking for the model of fossil capitalism, of course, it is basically an 18th century argument. If you're looking for the massive harnessing of commodified nature to capitalism, you go all the way back to the early modern period when the discovery of the rest of the world by Europe and the mobilisation of colonial resources. But if you look at the graph of global energy consumption, if you look at the graph of CO2 emissions, all the action is in the period after 1945. It's why they call it the hockey stick. It's basically a flat line with some gradual growth in small pockets of the world economy in the West up to World War II. And then this huge exponential surge from 45 onwards. The vast majority of CO2 emitted ever by humans through fossil fuel consumption has been emitted in the lifetimes of people alive today. Mm. Um, Everything really has happened in the last 50 to 70 years. And so the book focuses on the period from World War II onwards, where we see what I would describe as the emergence of energy states, modern states, which already have, if you like, policies for the mobilisation of fossil fuel for the purposes initially of fighting total wars, then for sustaining rapid economic growth in the Cold War period. On both sides of the Iron Curtain, we see massive mobilisation of a much wider range of fossil fuels. So the hydrocarbon revolution, the mobilisation of gas and oil is a post-1945 development. Even in the US, coal is still the dominant source of energy until after World War II in Europe and Japan, even more dramatically so. And so it's a story really of the construction of that energy-based, multiple energy-sourced modern mode of economic growth and then our increasing awareness from the 1960s onwards, really, of its potentially catastrophic implications for the environmental envelope. The timelines all interweave in an extraordinary way. The collapse of Bretton Woods drives the oil price shock, happens at exactly the same moment as the Earth Day in the United States in 1970, which is widely seen as the moment at which modern environmentalism emerges. Carter's administration in the 1970s is bargaining with the Europeans and the Japanese over a stimulus program for Europe and Japan in 78 and 79, 
and the willingness of the Americans to adjust their oil prices to global levels and therefore reduce their oil consumption. That's the bond G7 bargain of 1978. If that bargain was on the table today, we'd still take it. Mm. Stimulus program in Germany and Japan combined with sensible carbon pricing in the US is still the agenda of global governance today in a nutshell in many ways. So I'm going to make an argument at least, and it's just one take on a huge topic and there isn't so far a history, but I think I'm going to make an argument about the way in which this truly is not a separate field for people interested in green things, but really from the 1970s onwards repeatedly and then increasingly loudly and at WEF this year just monolithically dominant essential theme of global economic governance, one of the areas where global governance in a truly comprehensive sense has been most elaborate and most ambitious from the 80s onwards. And yet uh, we're in this paradoxical situation that, as you say, we're currently in the World Economic Forum in Davos, climate a complete obsession, but it's coinciding with a resurgence of nationalism which makes global governance that much more difficult. Absolutely. And you see this already, though, from the very early stage. So the Brazilian position that Bolsonaro is adopting is, in fact, a commonplace position of Brazilian nationalists from the 1960s onwards and very powerful within the Brazilian military during the period of dictatorship and manifest at the Rio conference in 92, where already Brazilian nationalists are saying, no, hands off, the Amazonian is our national resource to be developed as we see fit in exactly the same way as all the rest of you developed your resources. This is a Marxist conspiracy to control Brazilian sovereignty. It's not a new argument. All the way back to the 1970s, the arguments about energy politics in the US, as soon as they arise, are arguments about sovereignty. And those can be mobilised in different ways. They can be mobilised in a very aggressive way to say, right, we use our military power to take the oil we need. Where's the oil? The Trump question. Or it could, of course, be a driving force behind a national programme of greater self-sufficiency, modesty, reduction in dependence on imported oil, which is one of the ways the Democratic Party is still embracing the topic today. It's one of the ways the Democrats sell the Green New Deal to the American public is that it makes you less dependent on imported oil. And of course, fracking has done a huge amount of work. So there are deep continuities in these arguments. And, you know, I'm a historian of train wrecks, if you like. And that's, I think, the distinctive approach of a historian to a topic like this is you're not under the compulsion to offer fixes and solutions, right? I mean, I've written previously about Nazi Germany and the Versailles Peace Treaty and the financial crisis of 2008. I look at the climate community and say, why are you surprised? (laughs) name me a big global problem that has been, you know, neatly identified by a bunch of scientists and then fixed. That's not to say that I'm a pessimist. Global economic growth is a dramatic phenomenon. Mass poverty has been hugely reduced. But the story is indeed an incredibly complex one and one that currently doesn't offer simple solutions. Yeah, I mean, so let's get into that because there is rising anxiety. You mentioned the Californian fires, now the Australian fires... I was just in a session with the Afghan president who said he's more worried about the environment than about the conflict in Afghanistan, which is pretty astonishing given what he faces. And yet also a sense of hopelessness around this. Now, you've looked at the history of these negotiations. Do you have any reason to hope or believe that the world is going to crack this through some kind of international deal? Well, I think it has to be a combination of And one inevitably does end up sounding rather normative and prescriptive, but it has to be a combination of global agreement, which bolsters national commitments. Insofar as there is a hope at this current moment, I would locate it in the fact that the two great centres of global growth of the next 50 years, which are not in the West, but in Asia, 
neither of them, though it would be in their best interest to do so, have engaged in denialist climate politics. Neither the Chinese nor the Indian uh, administration, despite the fact that Hindu nationalism disputes the authority of Western science, both of them have found ways of owning the climate problem. And if there is going to be a solution to the climate problem, it has to come from Asia. Even the United States is increasingly dwarfed as a CO2 emitter by China. China now puts out as much CO2 as Europe and the United States put together. And India is rapidly catching Europe. And it's in those areas, too, which will be most affected. So part of the provincialization of the European and Western mindset that we have to go through is we have to recognize that we are now bystanders. We're collateral damage of a problem that has to be addressed in Asia. Of course, we started in the 1990s in the climate justice moment, where the entire argument of what we would call then the developing world was, no, this is a Western problem and you must fix it. And for 15 to 20 years, that dominated the agenda of global climate politics all the way down to Copenhagen. But the great breakthrough between Copenhagen in 2009 and Paris in 2015 was precisely that the large, now what we would then term emerging market economies, owned the problem. And both China and India are basically looking at a timeline for stabilizing CO2 emissions. Both of them are embracing renewable technology as a major competitive proposition for their future investment. If there's one big play that will decide the future of this it's the question of what China does with its existing fleet of coal-powered fire stations. Which and currently they're opening more. more. Yeah. Yes, and there I think we begin to see really dangerous interactions between the geopolitics, the increasing tensions between China and the West, and China and the United States, basically, um, and energy politics, because coal is the one domestic source of energy the Chinese have. It's cheap, it's free, it's local. And... If they commit to a more complex energy mix, imported oil or LNG, it makes them more vulnerable to American pressure. The only option for them would be some strategic partnership with Putin's Russia, which would deliver some of what they would need. So there indeed there is, I think, the real risk of a pushback. So for me, the central really dramatic question of the upcoming year, 2020, is whether or not we can see some sort of climate bargain between the EU and China. Um, and where would that take place and how? Well, the timeline is, is quite precise and it's quite deliberately designed. I mean, the Germans basically, because they're going to take over the presidency of the European Council, could see the timeline for COP26, which is Glasgow. And one gets a bit blasé about COPs, but COPs actually have an internal rhythm and COP26 really... COP standing for? For the, the conference of parties to the UN Climate Treaty uh, of Rio in 92. We're on the 26th. That's at Glasgow in November, earlier than normal. And it's crucial and not like, say, the one that was hosted in Madrid in the end of, of last year, because it's the one at which the parties to the Paris deal have committed to updating and, we were hoping, improving their emission reduction plans. We talk in terms of the ambition of national targets. And the idea was that Glasgow would be in the moment at which there would be a reckoning with the fact that the 2015 deal in Paris was uh, inadequate and that we would realise the scale of the climate emergency. And with America now opting out, America leaves formally uh, on the 4th of November, day after the election on the 3rd, the climate conference convenes in Glasgow within 10 days of that. If we go into that conference without a preliminary agreement between the Chinese and the Europeans on their mutual commitments, mm -hmm. uh, the, the prospects for Glasgow are very bleak, I think. But and it, can it even be done without the Americans? I mean, I think you made a really interesting point that it's a China-India game now. Yeah. But on the other hand, America is still the world's largest economy by some measures and the superpower. Well, climate politics has always been conducted as one of the things that makes it interesting 
essentially in the absence of truly firm American commitment. I mean, insofar as there has been global climate politics all the way back to Kyoto in 1997, it's been clear that basically the American Senate will not ratify a binding climate treaty. Mm. And so all of the global negotiations have been done under the proviso that basically they are commitments made by the executive branch of the time, basically democratic administrations. And that's the best that the world is going to get out of the United States. Um, What about this emphasis on state level? People say, well, at least California is doing something. Exactly. And so the negotiations go forward with a more or less willing national government in Washington and then the commitment of, say, the business community, people like Mike Bloomberg leading, you know, really quite serious push against coal in the American energy sector or big states like California, which are the size of Spain, large European countries, being very proactive and indeed constructing one of the most ambitious markets for carbon that there is anywhere in the world. And so the world has really always been functioning in the absence of a full commitment on the American side. And I think, you know, if Trump is re-elected, we have to come to terms with the fact that the American political system is broken in terms of its ability to deliver global governance in a way that is very profound. Mm. And European and Chinese commitment to the climate agenda cannot be conditional on major commitments by Washington under those circumstances. Of course, it's a new game then. Mm. And after Copenhagen, the fiasco in 2009, the Europeans made the running, um, but they did so in the knowledge that if they could get the Chinese and the Indians to agree to make commitments, then the Americans would be available for bilateral deals with them. And that's what opened the door to Paris. How this works in the absence of America as as a nation state is is a new question. But insofar as there is any hope, I think it depends on China and Europe being willing to bind each other. And last question then about the role of the Chinese. I mean, you talked about how in the initial phases of this, there was a sort of post-imperial mindset that, you know, this is a problem created by the West. They moved beyond that. But they seem to me in some ways just as sovereignty-minded as the United States. So it's very striking, isn't it, that they are prepared to take this on and... uh, how far do you think they may be prepared to go? I mean, part of the thing is the reality changed. It isn't just the discourse. There was a post-colonial, post-imperial moment, interestingly at odds with the unipolar American moment. The Americans are unipolar at the moment they lose control of climate politics. That's a big part of why it's so difficult for them to digest, because climate politics becomes UN General Assembly politics, which they're very inimical to. Um, But of course, what's changed in the last 30, 30 years is that China has become by far and away the largest emitter, In per capita terms, it now emits more than Europeans. So the current generation of Chinese are amongst the most polluting group of people ever to have lived, and there's 1.4 billion of them. And their pace of emissions is so rapid that even if you look at the cumulative total of emissions, within the foreseeable future, China will outrun Europe. So at that point, the entire logic of climate justice politics collapses. The Indians are really the last bastion of that powerful logic. And that is at odds with the position of many other smaller states, which are extremely vulnerable, like Bangladesh. You say, just do something. Forget the arguments about 19th century imperialism. We are going to drown, right? Mm. So that coalition, the anti-Western coalition, has just fragmented completely. And then it's up to large states to basically figure out how they can legitimately govern if they are faced with a reality, which both in the case of China and India is not going to impact other people. It's going to impact their populations incredibly dramatically. And I don't think there's any doubt at all that in the Chinese case, it was not so much the climate problem, but the pollution problem caused by the same thing that's causing the climate problem, namely the massive reliance on coal, 
in northern China in 2012, immediately as she took office, that was the breaking point. And that was the point where they realized that the legitimacy of the communist regime crucially depends on being seen to do something about the air quality problem. And that then provides the envelope within which they can internalize this issue and say, no, look, this affects us very dramatically. We'll have droughts, water shortages. We're a very fragile ecology. We have incredible density of population. We have to act. But you have to say that this does pose basic questions about, if you like, the political culture of these actors. China is in other respects, as we're becoming more and more aware, other, right? It's, it's operating a, a radically different regime and there's no surrender on that issue. India, likewise, like it's other. I mean, Hindu nationalism as a dominant hegemonic politics is not the kind of West convergent, Nehru version of Indian nationalism that we could live with because it was in so many ways inspired by and derived from an, an updated version. Nevertheless, both those polities have incorporated key elements of the scientific worldview that says, no, this is a real problem and we need to act on it. And we are bound by the force of that argument. Because after all, climate change makes exorbitant demands on our rationality. I mean, it really expects us to take the science seriously. Mm. And there's a very deep question about what it says about the United States, that that logic is not compelling. I, I was going to say, isn't it ironic yeah. that the nation that has venerated yeah. science more yeah. than any other, yeah. that's led the world yeah. scientifically, is now led yeah. by the only significant world leader who won't accept the science. Yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. And it goes to, I mean, nature functions fundamentally in, I mean, it's a natural right founded notion of polity, but it just turns out that people have different conceptions of nature and what, as it were, nature owes the American. Like the American dream is basically About conquering nature. premised on cornucopianism, right? The assumption that it's an endlessly providing, either one of the two, I would agree, either conquest or a kind of endless source of riches. So the frontier that keeps expanding. Keeps on expanding and now into space with the, I don't know whether you've seen the stuff about the space force, but it's quite extraordinary. Even the initial final frontier rhetoric and, mm -hmm. you know, mining asteroids. And so that I think is a really sobering, realization that, you know, across Eurasia, you might say, if you were going to go to some sort of geographic determinism across Eurasia, whether in India or, or in China, you have, or in Europe, you have a kind of a willingness, in a sense, to think in terms of limits and the constraints those exercise and how we need to organize our politics. And America is not party to that. And even if the Democrats win periodically, it's very unclear whether they can really establish hegemony. One shouldn't be totally pessimistic. There are specific interests at work. This isn't merely a matter of political culture. We know that fossil fuel interests in the United States organized in an absolutely ruthless way to subvert and undermine the confidence that science ought to command. But that too is a feature, not a bug, of the American political system, that those interests could exert the sway that they have. And breaking that and undermining it, it's a huge responsibility, I think, on the business community in the United States and on conservative opinion leaders in the United States to push back against this. Because liberals in the US can batter on about this as much as they like, and in some sense they just make the problem worse because they identify the issue more and more with their camp in a totally polarised society. What we need is people on the Republican side to be willing, as they still were in 2008. John McCain was still an advocate of climate politics. By the time we come to 2012, Mitt Romney flips in the course of the election campaign under pressure from Republican donors. And by the time of the 2016 election, the entire slate of Republican candidates was denialist. So that is a disastrous development in a two-party system. 
That was Professor Adam Toos of Columbia University, and that's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Rachman Review.